Rabbi Hirsch, we recorded this podcast, the Rambam episode two, over a week ago, and we were actually debating today whether we should send it out or whether we should address the very difficult situation that is currently happening in Eretz Yisrael to understand the origins and the direction, what we should be thinking about in this difficult time. We've taken the decision that in the next few weeks we'll create a podcast on the topic of Yishmol versus Yisrael. But presently we are going to publish Rambam 2, which is the episode that will follow after this. But you said you had an appropriate quote from the Rambam regarding this situation. Yes. Just briefly to mention what the Rambam wrote in Igeres Taimon, his letter to the Jews in Yemen, written while he was in Egypt. You should know, he writes, Shalaitamid al Yisrael, there will not arise against Yisrael a nation Yeser Oyeves Mimena with a greater hatred, Vloyuma Shera Betachlis Hara. And he adds, all the time that we are pursuing peace, they pursue war. And he quotes chapter 120 in Tehillim, which we'll come back to. And this, of course, was written more than 850 years ago and written by someone who had colleagues, especially in the medical field, who were of that faith. But he's describing the roots and the philosophy at the core. May we hear words of comfort soon. Obviously, our thoughts and prayers are with all the people in Israel who are suffering immensely. Most of all, the victims' families, the captives, and of course, the soldiers on the front line. We should only hear good news soon. And here is the Rambam part two. Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch. I hope you rested well after yesterday's whirlwind tour of London. Just to explain to the listeners, we have a very exciting clip coming up, which basically shows the background and the behind the scenes of the amount of work and effort that Rabbi Hirsch puts into making these weekly podcasts. And it's going to be a good one. Right. It might be slightly more, shall we say, exaggerated than the average podcast, just ever so slightly. <laughs> yeah. We also just want to tell the listeners that we are coming up to our 100th episode, which is quite major for us. And we we made it this far. Thanks for putting up with me. And thanks for all the listeners for joining in on the ride. We have a very special episode coming up, which was actually being recorded already. It will be released after Sukkot, and it's featuring the well-known Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. It's not an episode you want to miss. So as always, subscribe. Whatever platform you're listening to has a subscribe feature. So make sure you don't miss this episode. I think it's a week or two after Sukkot, Rabbi Yes, Ash. yeah. On the topic of Messiris Nefesh in history. Yeah. And on to the Rambam part two. So last week we covered the early period in his life. In this episode, we're going to be turning to his life in Egypt, which is the more, I guess, known period of his life. 
Yep. In the main, at least, the, his production of uh, response uh, and works. But as we will hopefully touch on, there are many incidents that are far less known. So as we left it in 1166, the Rumbum and his family arrive in Alexandria. His father is probably still alive at this time. They live there briefly and then they settle in Fustat in, in old Cairo. And he is, well, he had been moving from place to place for many years and now had come to a country that would be his home for the next 38 years. And whereas in Spain and Morocco, as we mentioned, he had to survive militant Islam under the Almohad regime. And in Eret Israel, he had to survive the dangers of a country which was on the front lines. Egypt, in contrast, would be a far more accommodating environment. How big was the community in Cairo? Cairo, probably three to 4,000. I mean, quite a large community for the time. And Egypt, in general, maybe ten to 12,000. In Cairo, there are three... Jewish uh, communities. You have the Karaites, and they were the more affluent members of society. And then you have two Rabbinite communities, meaning Orthodox communities, and both their synagogues are on the same street. There are the Iraqi Babylonians and the Israel Palestinians, as they were called. And they were both a, a short walk from the Rambam's house. But the shuls at the time were, beyond being obviously a place where they davened, it was the site of the Bestin. It was where administrators supervised communal charities, social services, and the one following Eretz Yisrael Minhogim had different nusach in prayer than the Rambam because he followed the Nusach of Bovel. But even then, he didn't really daven in his own, so to speak, shul either because they added too many piyutim to the prayers and he objected to that. So he used to frequent the Bate Medrash, the academies, and that's where he prayed. Now, one of his first communal involvements in Egypt was ransoming captives who'd been taken prisoner in warfare, especially with the Crusaders. And in fact, all three religions, the Muslims, the Christians, the Jews, had to deal with this concept of releasing prisoners who were captured by pirates or as hostages. And that he basically had almost a fixed price. It was, you know, the norm. The usual ransom for a single captive was uh, 33 and a third dinar. Uh, you get 100 dinars for three people, which is maybe, let's say, $1,000 in today's terms. But important individuals were held out for a higher ransom. The difference was that Christian and Muslim groups if civilians were taken during warfare or soldiers, their representatives could negotiate prisoner exchanges with each other. Uh, the Jews didn't have armies. They didn't therefore have prisoner exchanges. So their only recourse was to pay ransom. And pirates were constantly bringing 
merchants and travelers for this. Piracy in the Mediterranean, I mean, it increased because the Byzantine and Fatimid navies were fighting for control. And the way it went down was that pirates would bring Jews to Alexandria. The local Jews would initially pay out the ransom and take care of them because the released captive needed they needed clothing they needed support until they got home they the cost of the journey the poll taxes port duties uh, all of this was official and they had to pay it to the muslim authorities and obviously the costs became so high that they had to appeal to other communities for help especially the jews of the stat and you find combined fundraising appeals to both the Karite and Rabbanite communities. And you find halachic inquiries sent to the Rambam about ransoming captives, who rules on them in his responsa. For instance, he ruled that the ransomed captive is not obligated to repay those who paid the ransom because it is a, a religious obligation. It's not a loan. Because ransoming captives is the equivalent to saving lives, both in the laws of Tzedaka and in Halacha generally. And in the Geniza, we have four fundraising letters sent out by the Rambam on this matter. And we even have a receipt where he signs for nine dinars. And we see from it how personally involved he was. He is part of these campaigns to raise money for the release of captives. And these notices were issued by his own Bezdin, and one of the, his Dayanim was the sort of the scribe, because he could write letters in sort of rhymed prose, which was the perfect medium for these appeals. You had to strike a chord in people's hearts. And it's fascinating to see how the Rambam, for instance, created a strict policy of central command. He controlled the details. He, you know, was eliminating any chance of things going um, astray. He requested that all funds, all donor lists and all the sums pledged should be sent to him you know, fill it in on an Excel spreadsheet. And he designated officials to make the rounds, to, to read aloud fundraising letters in shul. We have one where he says, and I quote, we all go about night and day and encourage people in shuls and bazaars and at gates of residences to obtain funds for this momentous task only after we ourselves have contributed according to our means which is, in a way, so similar to the type of stocker appeals that we find, you know, Vagamani, you know, the Vadhat stocker, whatever it is. But the extent of his involvement just shows how seriously he took these things and how he was not somebody who was just theoretically involved in teaching others what to do. He very much took an active role in these things. And then we, as we know, he had a very full schedule, even with... Just his learning, his writing, his being yep. a doctor, it's Absolutely. unbelievable. And this, yes. this sort of Asconis is almost a full-time job in itself. Was he the head of the whole Jewish community, the official leader? It's a bit of a complicated question. He is known during his time in Egypt as the Nagid and Reis al-Yahud, which means uh, sort of both the rabbinic leader of the Jews and the representative to the government. But... Even though he is addressed as Nagid in some letters, 
and in fact, five generations of his descendants who, who took over from him were called Nagid over the next 200 years. He never called himself such. And his official title was probably only for two years and not 35. Why did he give up his title? <laughs> So the office of Nagid was not based on sort of tradition. It wasn't like in Bavel. It was created in 11th century Egypt to give the government a, a spokesman to whom they could turn, who was responsible for the Jewish community. And the Rambam had no sort of interest in it and no need in this. So why does he accept it? You mean in the first place? Yeah. We'll see more next time. But in September 1171, it was a critical time for the Jewish community. And he had to intervene to remove somebody else from the position who was a threat to the Kehillah. Now, while he was the Nagid, his document of appointment stressed that, first of all, he has to ensure that the Jews pay their poll tax. Second of all, that the dress codes are observed, you know, the, the yellow badge on their garment or the, the badge on their turbans. And he had to make sure that no new shawls were built. Uh, so, you know, the Rambam was never eager to be elected nor to generally walk the corridors of power because it could be dangerous. And, and he writes, and when I quote, you know, my honored son that these high offices that Jews attain in our time are not, in my eyes, happiness and worth striving for, and are simply a minor evil and an appalling vexation and burden. So He, he had a very good English. <laughs> yes, <laughs> correct. Well, he did have a very good Arabic. Um, <laughs> and he oversaw many of these Kehillah functions, even when he was not in office. He was supervising the shuls, the foundations, the social services, and taking care of the community. And throughout his decades in Egypt, he obviously responds to many queries that are addressed to him in person. Although you have times when the ruling of a sort of a lower court, a local Bezdin, had to be reversed or when he created a takona for the community or for the country. And at that stage, he had his members of Bezdin co-sign with him, which is not a sign of weakness or, you know, showing that he lacked authority, but this was the norm. You find the same in Bovel, in Baghdad, that uh, the decisions of the Gon were co-signed by other members of the Bezdin, and it shows the consensus in these areas. Can you tell us about the whole journey to being the doctor of the prince and his physician journey? So it really takes place in two parts. In 1174, he is appointed the court physician to Al-Fadil, who was the acting ruler, regent of Egypt, during the time that Saladin was fighting in the Crusades in Palestine. The Rambam's reputation as a physician accompanied him to Egypt in the first place. We mentioned that he was already studying this in Fez, in Morocco, and he'd been writing on the matter. But now, even neighboring countries became aware of his knowledge and greatness in this field, and his fame became widespread. We find that, I think it's in the same year, there is a physician philosopher from Baghdad who is called Abu al-Latif al-Baghdadi. 
I'm not sure why I subject myself to all these names. I should just say <laughs> it was somebody. This is um, why we waited so long for the Rambam episode. Right, exactly. Brush up your Arabic. Exactly. So this guy comes to Cairo and he asks to meet only three people, one of whom is the Rais Musa Ibn Maimun al-Yahud, or the Rambam. <laughs> And we also are aware that a few years later, Richard the Lionheart, who was fighting in the Crusades in the early 1190s, is reported at least to have invited the Rumbum to become his personal physician, which the Rumbum turned down. Invited him to, to move country. Well, he was at the time in the Holy Land, um, so how long he would have stayed there, it's an unknown had he defeated the Muslims and been victorious in the Crusades potentially he could have stayed there as we mentioned in a podcast long gone by yeah. he spent less than 10 years in his own country yeah i remember that uh, and it's not very there <laughs> now the rumbum had to have been what you could call nowadays an avid reader because his medical writings show an enormous knowledge of ancient greek authors which were arabic translations thereof and muslim medical works Galen, Aristotle, from Persia, he has others, Al-Farabi, Ibn Zur, who was the Spanish Arabic physician. Uh, they are all quoted by him. Interestingly, though, the Rumbum didn't only write medical advice and actual prescriptions that he dispensed to others, an example of one of which will be in the Ami magazine in the Sukkot edition now out in shops. We hadn't plugged it yet, this podcast. <laughs> but the Rumbum also writes about his own diet. He advises not to go to sleep on an empty stomach, but equally not to have any heavy foods. So in the evening, he himself would only take easily digested foods such as chicken soup, or the yolks of five or six cooked eggs seasoned with cane sugar and salt, or pistachio nuts and raisins, or raisins, almonds, and sugar candy. And he would drink sugar water or a honey drink, and in the winter, well, when it was cold, he would have wine and adjust his intake in accordance with the weather. That's interesting, because uh, now we know sugar isn't too good for you. Well, he only had one main meal in the day. We'll see that also next time. And he worked on his diet, so clearly he was aware and nevertheless. Now, beyond his occupation within the medical field, he had to deal much closer to home with tragedy and with illness because during his first years in Egypt, his father passed away and there was uh, the, the destruction of Fustat in 1168 because of the Crusader invasion. But far and away, the worst disaster of his life was the passing of his beloved brother, younger brother David, who drowned at sea on his way to India. He was a merchant of uh, precious stones. And David had been supporting the Rumbum financially, so that when he died, not only was the Rumbum left without any support, but he now took under his wing his brother's young daughter and the widow. And the news of his brother's death had an enormous effect on the Rumbum. For almost a year 
afterwards. He remained in bed with a severe fever and numbness of heart. This is how he himself records it. And eight years later, he talks about the fact that he is still not consoled. How can I be consoled? For he was my son. He grew up upon my knees. He was my brother, my pupil. It was he who did business in the marketplace, earning a livelihood while I dwelled in security. David has gone on to eternal life, leaving Moshe dismayed in a foreign land. Were it not for the Torah, which is my delight, and for scientific matters, which let me forget his sorrow, I would have perished in my affliction. Basically, he suffered a physical breakdown and mental anguish after his brother's death. He was, he was overwhelmed with grief, indelibly affected. And it's, I don't know if this is the right word, but it's incredible to see this great man, the, the giant of the generation, being so affected by tragedy. And as I mentioned, as he himself records it, grief is very real. No matter how big a, a mamin a person is or how big a, a Talmud Chochem. I also find incredible, first of all, how, how open he was about it, Very that he was so. overwhelmed with grief. And also the fact that that Torah was his savior. Uh, this is the sort of thing yeah. that could set anyone, you know, overboard. And he openly writes, Torah saved him. Yeah. You have spoken about his brother's family. Was the Rambam himself married? Late in life. As far as we know, the Rambam was not married before he came to Egypt. And even after his father and his brother passed away, he was evidently still single, married probably therefore in his early 30s. His wife was the daughter of Al-Sheikh Al-Tikar Mishael ben Yeshaya Halevi, a government official and a physician whose ancestors include scholars, physicians, and in fact, her brother married one of the Rambam sisters. And we have a letter of congratulation written to the Rambam at the time of his wedding, which describes his color as coming from a good family, Bas Tevim, and her father is called in the letter, is referred to as a chaver, a member of the, you know, you know, the academy of the yeshiva. And after his name, we find the phrase Zechrena Livracha, which indicates that he was, the father was no longer alive at the time that the Rambam got married. Now, the document is not dated. So we don't know exactly when the wedding took place, but it was after he was... 33, because he's called the Great Rav, which is a title which only occurs from 1171 onwards. Right, although some people can be a bit complimentary on invitations with titles. Possibly. So you've mentioned his communal involvement and uh, I guess his personal life. He must have also been writing Swarm at the time. Yes. Okay. So last week we mentioned his first of his three, the commentary in the Mishnah. Now we come to the second, the magnum opus, at least in the world of Torah, which the Rambam wrote between 1168 and 1178 in his 30s, the Encyclopedia of Halacha, of Jewish law, the Mishnah Torah, written in 14 books. The numerical value of 14 is Yad, which is why it's often referred to as the Yad HaChazaka. And he wanted this work to be immediately understood and accessible. So he writes in his introduction, which is the introduction to the Sefer HaMitzvahs, 
וכן ראיסי שלא אחברהו בלושן ספרי הנבואה. He chose not to write the Mishnah Torah in biblical Hebrew, He felt that the language is too brief to be able to express the intricacies of law. And similarly, he writes, Aramaic, which is the language of the Talmud, was out of the question because only a few understood it, and even those who did were sometimes befuddled by the occasional Greek or Latin words in there. So he decides to write it in the language of the Mishnah to make it linguistically accessible to as many people as possible, which indeed is the case. And he also felt that quoting all opinions and referring to uh, sources and names of, of authorities would confuse the reader and therefore limit the, the usefulness of this chibur, this halachic work. On the other hand, it's quite controversial to write such a massive piece of work without sources, no? Yes, he was very criticized for not giving sources. And there's, once again, a fascinating narrative about this. We, you mentioned earlier that he's quite open about his mistakes or about struggles. His struggles. Here you have a letter to a Dayan called Rav Pinchas ben Meshulam, years later. And the Rambam tells the following story. He says, a Dayan came to me with pages from my book in his hands from Hilchus Ritzeach. He showed me a section and said to me, where do these words come from? Where does this psak come from? And I said to him, they are found in the relevant section. They are either in Elohim Agoilin or in Sanhedrin. And the Dayan answered, I've already looked through all of these. I couldn't find it. So I said to him, well, maybe it's in the Jerusalem Talmud, in the Yerushalmi. And he answered, I've looked through the Yerushalmi and the Tosefta. I couldn't find it. So I said, this is all the Rambam speaking, I remember that in a certain place in Gittin, these ideas are mentioned. And I pulled out a Gomorrah Gittin, while his visitor is there, and I searched and I couldn't find it and I was really puzzled. Finally, after he left, I remembered. I sent a messenger and brought him back and I showed him that the matter is explicitly in Yovomus, mentioned as an aside. We don't actually know what it was, which would have been fascinating. And the Rambam then writes, he continues, I'm always worried when people come and ask me, where were these things said? Sometimes I can answer the question immediately, and other times I can't. And I can't remember the source without actually searching. And I'm greatly pained by this. I say to myself, if I, the author, and the source still escapes me, what about the rest of the people? And I now regret that I didn't write these sources, which, if God lets, I will do, even though it's a lot of work. So, you know, being very honest with himself. Incredible, incredible honesty. And he goes on to say, obviously, in and he gives an example, in the case of the laws of Shabbos, everything that is explicit in Mesechta, Shabbos, or Erevin, I don't have to give it source. In other words, he is still writing for an audience that is fluent in Talmud. But a halacha in Hilcha Shabbos that comes perhaps from Mesechta's Avodah or Psochim, or Zvochim, or Krisus, I will give it source. And this will be a new book in itself. I can't do this in the main body of the Chibur. I also find it mind-blowing that uh, you would think the Rambam, who has such a household name of, of Halacha, you would think he had an instant recollection of the whole Shas and Poskit. I mean, Gedolim only 100 years ago were fit, the Vilna Gond, they were famously so... so- 
this is very different. He's not recalling, in other words, somebody asking him X. He inferred from a piece of Talmud a conclusion. So it's very different. It's not somebody asking you, where does a buyer say X? It's where did you come to a conclusion about a particular topic within the corpus of Talmud? Now, Now, unfortunately, he was never able to publish this supplemental work, although he does mention in this letter that he carried on teaching his students Gomorrah and the Rif and obviously did not restrict his teaching to his own Mishnah Torah. It's just amazing how how human he was, and I mean, obviously, he was he was human, but from our perspective, that we can see a man of his up of close. his level so up close, which is unlike any other. Do we have any other accounts of Rishonim at that time no. with such a personal? We often know nothing about their lives. I mean, to contrast it very briefly with Rashi, first of all, we do not have a single word in Rashi's own handwriting those of his pupils, but none of his. And we don't even know, for instance, if Rashi had two daughters or three daughters. So, okay, that's true about the Rambam sisters, but, you know, you have so much detail about his life. This is unique. And there is another area that we get an insight into the Rambam's, first of all, approach to halacha and about his temperament. And those are found in his truvus often, his responsa, which occupied a large amount of space in his life. You know, we've got draft copies of these responsa in his own handwriting. And in these drafts, we see that the Rumbum wrote his answer on the uh, paper which had the question in the first place, you know, on the blank part of it, sometimes on the reverse. And if he was writing at the end of the day, when he was tired, he would be lying down and he'd be writing, leaning on his side. We'll see this more next time. And a professional scribe would then make a full copy of the answer and send it to the questioners, which is how we retain the original in his own handwriting. They are a little less accessible to us because obviously they're written in Arabic or Judeo-Arabic, but they were eventually translated and then printed. The first of the responsa that we have nowadays is dated 1167, a year after he came to Egypt, and they continue to the last year of his life till 1204. So he was engaged in it during every phase of his life in Egypt. And we see not just his great knowledge, which we expect, but his great pikhus, his brilliance in solving seemingly impossible situations. And I will share a few with you. One is a query that was sent to him about a man who divorced his wife, a get, with two witnesses signing, and they delivered it to her. And she then completes her period of waiting three months between marriages, as Halacha prescribes, and then marries somebody else, and she has children with the second husband. And now seeing this, the first husband is jealous that she is, you know, remarried and happy. And so he writes a document in the presence of two new witnesses that the original adim, the original witnesses to that bill of divorce were disreputable sinners. And that means their testimony is null and void. And the man then takes this new document to Bezdin to try and invalidate his divorce from his first, from his former wife and annul 
her marriage to her new husband because it would now mean that the children from a second marriage were illegitimate. In short, her ex was um, a really, you know, lovely piece of work. <laughs> right? And this is sent to the Rumbum. So the Rumbum writes as follows. He says... Obviously, whoever permitted witnesses of this type to testify in the get in the first place have made a major error because sinners shouldn't be accepted in civil or criminal Jewish law as witnesses. But what to do now? So he says, you know, the husband has a point. The two witnesses should be invalidated, except that in order for them to be properly invalidated, not only would they have had to have committed disreputable acts, they would have to have done so in public in front of two witnesses and have to have been warned before committing these acts of indecency. And at that point, yeah, yeah, go ahead and invalidate them. Of course, the Rambam knows that, you know, people don't commit acts of indecency in public and they certainly don't get warned in advance. So now he's established that. And then the Rambam says to the husband, oh, you, write a new bill of divorce now just to confirm the original divorce because you made it quite clear back then you had divorced her. But she can stay with a second husband and her per- children are perfectly kosher. <laughs> That's one case. I mean, there, there are many, but here's another marriage query which involved a woman who'd married twice and was widowed twice. And the Gomorrah records a ruling that a, a woman whose first two husbands die is considered a katlanis and may not marry a third time if the circumstances are similar, as the, the Ramah adds, and there are two possible reasons given in the Gomorrah. Now, in this particular case, the Bezdin restrained her from marrying a third time, but for what are really complicated reasons, the creditors were given first rights to her second husband's estate, which meant she had no sustenance from the land which her second husband had left. They took it all. And now she can't marry a third. So she's got no income, not from the second, not from the third or potential third. So the Rambam answers that the prohibition against a twice-widowed woman remarrying should be understood as far less severe than it's being presented as. And he says the Bote Din, the courts in Spain, would close their eyes, basically, and let the woman remarry without formal permission. Meaning what they would do is they'd let the woman go through the first stage of marriage called Kiddushin, which is the first half of what we do under the chuppah, the first cup of wine and the ring, and this should be done on her own. In other words, the Rambam advises, all you need is two kosher witnesses and the chosn and the kala, that's it. And then once that stage has happened, she should turn up in town to the Bezdin and tell them the position that she's now in, she's halfway through a marriage to a third husband, and they now have to complete the second part of the marriage and Sheva Brochus, and it's a fit accompli that she's presenting them with, and they should complete everything in the right order. And he says, this is how the Rif paskand, this is how the Rimigash paskand, and it's the way I have decided and acted in Egypt since I've arrived here. And indeed, it's quoted by the Beis Yosef in its chapter 9 of Evan Hoez at the very beginning, and it seems how we paskand nowadays. And in this particular case, he stressed, it's a very serious matter which could eventually lead to the laws of the Gentiles, meaning if she goes to the Muslims, they will decide the case very differently. And that could lead to major disruptions in divorce cases, which is not a 21st century question alone. 
And he says you have to be lenient in these matters because exactitude on a minor point will lead to very serious consequences. Obviously, he is fully aware of the issues, but that's how he puskins and he adds, he signs as he does normally, Ukatav Moshe, signed by Moshe, by the Rambam. This particular case, not that I want to delve into it too much, but why would that be more permissible to do it in two stages? Because as soon as she is in that position, the Rambam held that the Gomorrah's prohibition doesn't apply. The Gomorrah is stating, if the woman comes to Bezin and says, may I, they'll say no. But if she's in that position, by the way, this is not the only type of scenario where we in that way, even nowadays. It's a legal loophole almost. Yeah. Well, it, it, no, it's defining the halacha as applying to particular scenarios and right. in other words, the prohibition never was formulated in no. those other and cases. And his point is basically saying in a rough way that don't be overly machmer. You have to know the exact halacha to know Absolutely. exactly how to, yeah. how to totally. get out. Totally. Um, okay, so he's clearly being consulted for his opinions outside of Egypt. But how well known was the Rambam? How far did, was he world famous? Did he... Did, Back then, did, in his yeah. own lifetime, you mean? Meaning, of course, nowadays he's on right. every bookshelf. But right. the Ashkenazi world, had they heard of him? Did they send a response to him? Okay, so when he wrote his commentary on the mission that we mentioned last week, he became known as a Talmud Chochem. But when he published, I mean, obviously it wasn't printed, it's all handwritten, but when he published the Mishnah Torah on Halacha, that made him clearly at least one of the principal scholars of his generation during his lifetime, especially because, as we mentioned, it was printed in Hebrew, not Arabic, so the entire Jewish world, including the Ashkenazi world, could access it. And therefore, yes, he was very much a household name back in the day. Famous during his lifetime. I will share two more responses. The next truva, the, the answer isn't a surprise. The question might be, though, because apparently chazonim in shuls were frequently intoxicated during davening and behave, behaved inappropriately because these chazonim were often virtuoso performers and they were on the road. They were appeared in different towns and they're rewarded for their creative effort. And they were even brought in from as far afield as Spain, France, and Iran to Fustat. And they had adverts in the magazines, I'm sure, talking about concerts. The original were, rock stars. Well, they were like <laughs> opera singers. And as Goitin observes, not a few of them manifested a certain predilection for the bottle. <laughs> Um, and a certain cousin, at the point of intoxication, behaved incorrectly. He came to shul late, and he found that there was another cousin that they had put in his place, and he objected, and while he's drunk, he takes a sefer and he threw it down. And the killer asked the Rambam what should be done, and he answered that whoever supports this cousin or doesn't try and depose him demeans the law the halacha, and is included amongst those who despise and desecrate Torah and who's guaranteed to be himself dishonored by mankind. <laughs> okay. Then the Rambam answered three questions from Ovadia the Ger, who was a Muslim who converted to Judaism and lived in Jerusalem. Not, by the way, to be confused with Ovadia the Norman Christian who converted to Judaism in 1102. Now, we only have the queries as rephrased by the Rambam, but we learn that he, Ovadia that is, believed that Muslims were not 
idolaters, whereas his Jewish teacher insisted that they were and compared Islamic practices to, you know, idolatrous worship mentioned in the Gemara. And his teacher shamed Ovadia in public and called him a fool. And the Rambam writes, there is no idolatry in Islam. Muslims believe in monotheism. And he sort of, you know, tries to reverse the ill effects of Vadya's teacher by reassuring him that he is a true son of Romovinu who's going to be rewarded in this world and in the next. And once again, you have find his, the human touch of the Rambam coming through in this question. He doesn't just, you know, occupy himself with the uh, pure, dry, uh, legal response. And he writes that his teacher owes him a full apology. Now, he writes in Hebrew because, probably at least, he didn't want it to be read by Arabic speakers because conversion from Islam was subject to the, the death penalty. And in another one of these truvas, he is asked, can a ger, can a convert, say, in davening? And he says, you ask me. If you're allowed to say in the blessings, the God of our fathers and who has brought us out of the land of Egypt, and he answers, yes, you can. You don't have to change it in the same way as every Jew by birth can. And the reason is that Avram of Vinu taught and revealed the, the true faith and unity of God, and he is the father of all Jews, including converts. And he ends his truva, do not consider your origin as inferior. Wow. I just want to pick up on what you mentioned earlier on, his more personal writings, when he said about his works that they didn't have a source and his struggles with the fact that he couldn't instantly recall it. Where was that written? Was that written as a chuva? It almost sounds like a diary so, entry. Sometimes they are letters. Sometimes they're part of a chuva. We'll see this more next time in what we're going to do. And we are also going to deal with dangerous people what did he mean when he wrote in 1185 that there was an attempt by informers to have him killed? And we're also going to deal with how the Rambam was honoured long after his death. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. A brilliant episode. Thank you. And I'm assuming there's going to be an, a lot of interest for another Geniza tour. I guess anyone who's interested could send in and perhaps, perhaps we'll arrange another one after this. Okay, Leonida. Thank you, and make sure you send your questions, your feedback to podcast at jaily.org.uk. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss another episode, especially the 100th episode, which you definitely won't want to miss. And keep your eyes open for the upcoming behind-the-scenes clip. And one final plug for the ME. It's a great article on the, on the Kniza, and you should definitely buy it. It's out in the shops now. Thank you, Robert Hirsch, and good night. Mm-hmm.